Welcome everyone to another episode of Dardashe. Today I'm joined with my colleague and friend Amjad Iraqi, editor of 972 magazine and media outlets. They're doing amazing work on, on Palestine and Israel, so please check them out. Amjad, welcome my friend. Thanks so much for having me on, Sam. Yeah, it's great to have you on, on Dardashe. Um, I wanted to get right into it. I wanted to talk to you about the Israeli, well, Israeli politics, Israeli coalition government. Uh, recently, the Prime Minister, Naftali Bennett, went to the US, met with the Biden administration. And one of the, 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 the leading headlines from that trip was that he wasn't going to offer Palestinians a state, but uh, he wasn't going to annex the land either, which seems like the, the purgatory we're used to. What is your take on what's coming out of this coalition government in relation to Palestine and Palestinians? Yeah, this is a very important place to start. Um, I want to footnote by saying that it's hard to kind of judge a government that's been in power for only a few months uh, versus a government uh, that's been in power under prime minister for the past 12 years. Uh, but we can see sort of similar, um, we can already identify certain trends that the government is going to be pursuing. Now, the purgatory that you just explained right now is precisely that. Th that purgatory was in fact constructed by uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, if not prime ministers before, but that purgatory of no annexation and no statehood essentially means that we would like to sustain the status quo. And that's not a status quo of realities on the ground because the kind of uh, uh, occupation process and colonial process is constantly changing those realities, but it is very much a, um, a status quo of the power dynamics between Israel and the Palestinians. Uh, now this, you know, quote unquote stability that, uh, that this regime brought, uh, Netanyahu really pegged a lot of premiership on that stability uh, Bennett the Bennett wants to maintain that uh, they want to essentially their fundamental policy towards the Palestinians is to preserve that status quo but without the same drama that came with Netanyahu and his personal issues with corruption uh, his uh, kind of uh, cult of personality that revolved around the Likud party and the right so it's tried to it's tried to maintain the very regime that that Bibi himself helped to uh, design and stabilize and to continue that into the future. And that's what Bennett uh, seemed to have been offering to Biden during his meeting. Yeah, it seems it seems like a repackaging of uh, economic peace uh, piecemeal. Um, you know, you had uh, Benny Gantz, uh, Minister of Defense, go over and meet with President Abbas recently and offer him all these different things that would improve the standard of living for Palestinians uh, in, in the occupied territories. Um, and it's it's the same stuff over and over again, you know. Um, what do you make of that? I mean, this in itself is a continuation of what Netanyahu especially promoted as uh, what he called like economic peace. Mm -hmm. And the idea is to basically try to silence Palestinians and Russia as much money as possible and to make them feel that they're living are somewhat, uh, you know, somewhat acceptable and to try to make them focused on what they call like internal issues. So about socioeconomic concerns rather than the large political political concerns. Now, this has been a longstanding policy by a lot of Israeli governments uh, and it's not one that's unique and it's practiced in a lot of different countries and a lot of uh, colonial or occupying powers. Um, but this is the same thing that Bennett and Lapid are basically, uh, are basically pursuing. Um, and there's a major fear uh, that if it was sort of put under more question marks under Netanyahu and trying to get him to say like, no, you should really consider the political equation of all this, 
the concern is that they might be more receptive to someone like uh, a new prime minister like Bennett, to someone who's more like centrist uh, or identifies as centrist, like Yair Lapid, who's saying that, who literally said to the EU, for example, that, uh, you know, I support two-state solutions, but I don't really see any path towards sustaining it. So the best we can do right now is to improve the, the, the economy. So it's like a different packaging for essentially the same objective that has been carried out uh, for the past decade plus. Uh, so this really needs to be flagged uh, every time it's brought up. Yeah, and it, it brings a lot of these tangible, small, tactical wins to the PA as well. I mean, they were, you know, shouting from the rooftops that we have 4G finally, uh, you know, while they're <laughs> going more on an authoritarian bend. And it's, it's this uh, threshold that keeps everything stable enough not to land into crisis, but never to give Palestinians their full rights or freedoms. And it's a, it's a state of limbo constantly um, without real progress. And uh, I think one of the, the frustrations I engage when, when, we, we, uh, in the, when we talk to the international community, you know, they're like, oh, you know, we finally can talk to a foreign minister. You know, they're welcoming Lapid, you know, someone who's reasonable, someone who has open channels. The other point, which frustrates me even more, I think, is that, oh, but there are Arabs in the coalition government. You know, and that's now one of the newest talking points that's emerging. So I, as, a, as a Palestinian from 48, what is, what is your feeling on that, you know, uh, having Arabs part of the, the coalition government? What's kind of the general reception or reaction to that within the Palestinian 48 community, given that it's not homogeneous? Yeah. I mean, that itself is also quite a new question that uh, we're experiencing and also investigating on. Uh, I, mean, I mean, I would say maybe two things. So the first is that, you know, when we do discuss the issue of Palestinian representatives in the Knesset, it's important to start off from the community's perspective. You know, a lot of the past couple of years, for example, when a lot of there's a lot of analysis about the joint list, which was the united slate of Arab political parties, too much of the analysis tend to be on whether or not the joint list could help to oust Netanyahu or we join the center-left coalition to oust them? And that was an important question, and that's also an important question to the community, but you have to start by asking, why is the community voting for members of the Knesset? Why are they pursuing things through this government which, and through the system which they know is inherently discriminatory against them? Um, and from this, you can understand why someone like Mansour Abbas and the Islamist party decided to go towards a route which says that rather than trying to uh, hold, hold a principal position as a center-left bloc uh, against um, against the policies of the right or against the policies of the state, we're going to try this sort of uh, quote-unquote pragmatic approach uh, by getting inside the system uh, or getting inside it a bit more a uh, bit more deeply uh, through the coalition, and then to pursue the needs that Palestinian citizens have. We're talking major socioeconomic concerns, crime and gun violence is a huge problem. Uh, you know, economic budgets and housing, like, like these are very real demands that are driving at least the basis of, uh, of Ram's pursuit of, the, of membership in the coalition. But when push comes to shove, we can actually see that a lot of this is very cosmetic. A lot of this is, uh, is kind of is really politicking. Uh, despite the fact that uh, Ram is a member of the coalition, they don't actually have, for example, a, a core government ministry position. I think Mansour Abbas is like the deputy minister of uh, like Arab affairs under the prime minister. Even. Like it's the, like, you know, he didn't even get a seat at the main table, yeah. uh, which is being uh, shared among most of the, Jew the Jewish parties, which is, you know, 
just one symbolic significance of that kind of second, uh, that, that second tier status, which are still considering Arab parties. So you're not really an equal partner. Just take what we can get you and focus on the Arab affairs things. Um, and we saw this also as well with, with issues like uh, a couple of months ago, the Israeli Knesset was debating the issue of the citizenship and entry into Israel law. This is the law renewed every year since 2003, basically banning family unification between uh, Palestinians who were born in occupied territories and anyone who has Israeli citizenship, which meant predominantly Palestinian citizens of Israel. And you could see the extent to which that even within Ra'am, uh, the coalition, you know, the Bennett Lapid coalition wanted to renew this law, and Ra'am was very insist was clearly shaken because, on the one hand, if they want to remain in power, then they have to side with this discriminatory policy, and but on the other hand, if they do so, then they're literally betraying a huge chunk of their own constituents, let alone the community they're claiming to represent. Um, and the law ultimately failed, and Ra'am itself kind of splits into abstentions and voting for. But it was just like a prime example of like, in order, if you really want to have political sway, or even just a, not even political sway, political symbolism in the state, you have to agree to your own inferiority. You have to agree to some of the most substantial racist laws that exist. It was a very like dramatic um, uh, example of about that manifest here. Yeah, it's a schizophrenia that I think ultimately always puts you in the inferior position. Um, and I think this is a very interesting juncture, I think. You know, what, where does the involvement in politics and activism within the Palestinian community in 48 go from here? You know, you have one, one I think, success in defined by their terms, probably, by Mansour uh, Abbas. And, and then you have the Palestinian community that was extremely active and loud and at the forefront of the uprising, and it had been that happened in May and June in mobilizing Palestinians all over. So we're, we're at this crossroads, where, where do we go, you know, and where do you, does the community go, do you think? It's really hard to say. Um, and a big question mark is how much the events of the summer, especially like of May and you know, what we describe as unity, the unity intifada, how much of that can sort of continue past the, the, the hyper event that it was, you know, in the middle of it during those weeks. And it's really difficult. Uh, on the one hand, there's no doubt that it really kind of uh, gave a window into how much Palestinian society in Israel really still holds on to its Palestinian identity. You know, for the past 20 years, there's been this fear that there's been this kind of like Arab Israelification of the community. Uh, there's this fear that they really have been turning so inwards and that they've kind of forgotten the big picture. And it did to some extent, you know, they, in the same way that sort of economic peace was used in the West Bank to try to pacify them, it's also being used among the Palestinian community here. And there are a lot of huge debates, but um, it's now a question mark of like, you know, are we, we're still exploring, are we going back to the politics of normal? where you have these very different political camps, still these same debates about Knesset participation or not, um, or are we trying to construct something different? Um, and it's not easy. Uh, like, on the one, you know, while you had that grassroots act activism in May, things have sort of felt like they've gone back to normal over, the, over these past few uh, weeks and the months after. Um, the fact that the, uh, the core political leaderships uh, of Palestinian community in Israel, that includes like the joint list, which broke up into now the mini joint list, and, and the Islamist Ra'am party, but then you also have a high follow-up committee, uh, which is like a, a body that exists outside the Knesset that's supposed to represent multiple uh, sectors of the society, but doesn't really have any political power. So there's unfortunately been this refragmentation 
mm-hmm. even of the established leadership. Um, and it's not to say that they are the sole uh, carvers of the path of the community. On the contrary, what was extraordinary about May uh, was that this younger generation, especially, were really pushing back against the traditional leaderships in the same way that they were uh, in, in other Palestinian communities. Um, but that grassroots activism revival, you know, it still hasn't grappled with, okay, how do we really organize ourselves across communities? Geography still divides a lot of Palestinian 48ers. Uh, socioeconomics still divides them quite a bit. Uh, the political differences that they have, you know, the fact that not a lot of people in the North really connect with people in the, club, uh, in the, in the Bedouin community down South. And so these fragmentations still exist. And in the end, you know, there's still that same concern of like, you know, um, you know, if we don't know where the Palestinian question as a whole is moving towards, then how can we speak, you know, how can we try to influence anything? Like, are we moving towards a two-state? Are we really trying to construct the one state? Where is the PLO and all this? And if those questions are unanswered, then the community is going to inherently focus back on socioeconomic concerns. Um, so, you know, there are all these little factors that really relate to each other, and it's still yeah. just very difficult to know where it's going to head. I think that's a very critical point, Amjad. I think what we have is a lot of because of the reality of the Palestinian people, the fragmentation, a lot of these movements have been decentralized and localized. So while there are loose networks that are able to coordinate with one another, and we saw that in May and June, there isn't an institution or a structure that can bring all these people together, a political system, a Palestinian political system, to be able to discuss. And it's very interesting to hear you say that, that without that larger vision and national strategy as a people, fragmentation forces us to, to localize our attention, especially in 48. Um, and I, I wonder, you know, how this is gonna be redefined given the events of the last year, because a lot has changed in a way, um, and, but in, in another way, it's gone back to normal. So it'd be, it's gonna be an interesting development to watch. I wonder, you know, uh, if, if the, the doors open um, to a different type of engagement in, in the politics of the state. Um, I wonder if, if there's, there's thinking around that or is there still an apprehension from big parts of the community? Um, this is also kind of being explored actually over the past few months to see how, how much it's changed. I mean, in the end, you know, like Palestinian citizens understand that to engage in the state is to engage in the regime that is again working against them in, yeah. in many respects. Uh, but it's more of like, could we use any of these state institutions to our personal advantage? So one thing that's often described about, you know, people often tell Palestinian citizens that maybe they shouldn't vote because you're legitimizing the system and you're providing like a fig leaf for this, uh, for the state that describes itself as a democracy. It's an important question, but there are many other reasons and many other factors to describe and explain why the state is inherently racist and discriminatory. But for a lot of Palestinian citizens, you know, things like the right to vote is not so much to legitimize the system, it's to say, we want to organize ourselves. Because right now, in fact, uh, aside from sort of, you know, local municipalities and the right to vote, you know, for your mayor, for your city council, whatever, the Knesset elections are probably the only sort of established and trusted system for Palestinian citizens to elect their own leaders on a national basis. That's why they vote for these political parties. It's not just to say like, you know, uh, yeah, we we do believe that it's democracy, but it's like, I'm going to use this right to vote in order to decide, you know, who is representing me on the international stage, who's representing me in front of um, the Jewish Israeli audience, who's trying to push the system a little bit to try to squeeze out anything that they can 
for our basic needs and basic survivals. So it's you know it's using that to it's using that for for our sake. You know it's the same way even on like a like a ground level. You know the fact that Palestinian citizens have Israeli blue ID, uh, have yellow license plate cars. Um, you know that they can travel either abroad, but also they can travel through the West Bank. Uh, you know quite freely. I mean it's a privilege that they have. But a lot of activists, especially, are using that to their advantage. Even if you're not political, just to go, you know, visit family or you know, go sh uh, shopping or contribute to the economy or do business in the West Bank with other Palestinians, is is already keeping that uh, those connections between uh, on both sides of the green line. Uh, so that's that's one way that you're using these state mechanisms, institutions to our advantage. And we have to think strategically about, you know, how much further can we do so. Uh, I mean, the joint list was an experiment in how far could we could you put could you push that in the parliament? Um, you know, we could argue that it was a very failed experiment, even though they had fifty got the third largest um, you know they're the third largest faction uh, in the parliament. Um, but did it achieve what we wanted to, or could we have used it for something different? Um, these are debates that are happening, but again, without a sort of um, core centralized forum. Uh, and some leadership to help guide those go, those questions and processes. It's just going to be sort of these kind of open-ended questions with no real path uh, path forward. Um, so yeah, yeah. It seems the answer to every question is Palestinian unity and and representation and democracy is the first step to fundamental change. Because as as we go back to the the, the beginning of our conversation, otherwise it's all tweaking a system that is fundamentally oppressing one people, holding them in theory across the green line. And it's about, you know, making sure the standard of living is tolerable enough that there isn't a mass uprising. Um, and it's with this new government, it's just being packaged, I think, slightly better. And the, 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 the baggage of Netanyahu is not being carried around the world with it. Um, and it's, it's very frustrating to see to, that the, the, the amnesia, I think, a lot of people have, that they realize this is not, you know, this is not related to one politician or one party, but it's across the system and across the spectrum of political parties. Um, what do you say to, to many of people who work on this issue um, who are not Palestinian uh, about the Israeli government and the coalition government and what to expect from it in the future? Yeah. This Israeli government itself is very unpredictable. You know, you have eight parties in the coalition and who knows what uh, new uh, situations and circumstances are going to push it to either certain breaking points. Um, and don't forget that the opposition uh, right-wing bloc, which is still being led by Netanyahu as opposition, uh, as opposition leader, uh, you know, they, they still have a lot of potential to mess things up. Uh, so on that front, you know, it's, it's very interesting to be very interesting to see how it goes. Um, but I guess, you know, a core thing to understand for people abroad is the extent to which the Israeli political spectrum, no matter who is in power, still has the same fundamental uh, sort of premise uh, insofar as like Jewish Israeli Zionist politics is concerned. Uh, this, you know, there are obviously differences between like a far right person like Bennett and, you know, a central left party like, like Labour. There are certainly spectrums of difference. But in the end, they're both very much premised on the idea and the principle that we need to maintain a form of Jewish privilege, Jewish supremacy, military supremacy over the Palestinians in some form or another. 
let's not forget that the occupation itself was began by the center-left Labour Party back in the 60s. Uh, let's not forget that they helped to maintain that occupation and even uh, pushed forward the settlement enterprise long before the right wing came to power. It wasn't Netanyahu who invented this at all, nor did he push it further than usual. It was actually very much a cross-sectional um, agreement. These now fractures started to exist, obviously, but when you even look at uh, the way that someone like Yeri Lapid, again, who is one of the main architects of this coalition, who poses himself as a centrist. Okay, what's the cent what exactly is a centrist value? The centrist value is basically what Bennett actually promoted, of no annexation and no state. Keep everything as it is. You can claim that you want a two-state solution, but say that, I'm sorry, it's not realistic. Or, you know, in the end, you know, maybe even if we do give uh, uh, Palestinians a state, in the end, we need to maintain Israeli military supremacy, need to uh, still maintain some identity of Israel as a, Jewish, as a Jewish state, which inherently means you need to design laws and policies that continually provide privilege to Jews over Palestinians, including Palestinian citizens. Uh, even Lapid himself uh, uh, says that we're not interested in giving up Jerusalem, like that includes East Jerusalem, like he said this years ago, and I think he's been repeating it recently as well. Um, the fact that, for example, even with something like a saga of uh, the Ben and Jerry's uh, ice cream, uh, uh, <laughs> the whole ice cream saga, where basically, you know, uh, you know, the Ben and Jerry's company decided that they no longer want to be marketing or selling their products in occupied territory, and everyone from the right to the left flipped at the idea that the company would dare to distinguish between the green, you know, between this side of the green line and the other, and Lapid was one of them, and so just to see this you know, allergic reaction to the idea that. Uh, that we want to make a difference between the Israeli state and the settlements, that is unacceptable even to the Israeli center. That is unacceptable to the Israeli mainstream. Um, and this really needs to be grasped because it, it really was never just about Netanyahu and those kind of more dramatic right-wing figures. The fact that Israeli states and society uh, inherently sees the occupied territories and lives the occupied territories as if it were an integral part of the state. The fact that you can easily drive a road in the West Bank and you will never know that you have left or crossed the green line. Um, you know, the fact that there are all these businesses and banking uh, industries, like all of these operate uh, in such a way that there is no distinction in reality or in the mind of Israelis vis-a-vis -vis the territories. Now, if this is the case, we have to understand the state and society as Israelis see them, as the Israeli political spectrum sees them. It can't be that literally most people from Israeli right to left are saying, nope, this, this is all ours and we need to maintain control. And people abroad, like the European Union, like the United States, are like, oh, no, you really want a two-state solution. Yes, they really do believe in uh, you know, a solution down the line. No, no, the current situation is precisely the solution. The maintenance of apartheid is the consensus of the Israeli political spectrum. And that includes the center-left party who will be terrified of the idea of even questioning Israel as a Jewish state, even questioning that maybe Palestinian citizens, even putting aside other Palestinians, the Palestinian citizens deserve full equality under the law. And this needs to be really boiled down to no matter which face or which figure is taking up the premiership in this government. And on that beautiful, beautiful answer, Amjad, uh, I'm gonna say thank you. Um, it is always a pleasure to, to hear you and, and get your opinion on things. And I hope it, it, it sheds or enlightens people who I think have, have forgotten <laughs> or seem to have forgotten what the system is. Um, but it's really important and really important to drive this message home. So thank you for your time. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you. And please, everyone, 
go check out 972. They're amazing reporting and news coverage. And uh, Amjad's brilliant writing. Uh, Amjad, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Shalom. And thanks so much for all the PIBD work that you guys have been doing. It's really incredible stuff. Thank you, man. Thank you.